Please take your Bibles and turn along with me to Romans chapter 1. Our text this morning is a great text to prepare our hearts for communion. The Lord's table, which we'll enjoy in just a few minutes. Romans chapter 1. Our text this morning is also, perhaps more than any other, responsible for helping to spark the Great Reformation. For it was this text, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that was really chief among other texts that God used to call the church back to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You know the story of the Reformation, how Martin Luther, that Augustinian German monk, was obsessed with the question, how can a sinful person have peace with a holy and righteous God? As a good Roman Catholic, Luther had spent his life and energies trying and trying to keep the law of God and observe the sacraments of the Catholic Church. But the more he tried, the more he was overwhelmed with a sense of his own guilt and shame and sinfulness and depravity. This search for peace with God sent him running to the Scriptures, desperate for answers. And it was while reading and studying the book of Romans, and in particular the first chapter, that Luther found the answer to his soul's deepest question and longing as he read and reread one verse Romans 1 17 for in it that is in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the righteous man shall live by faith Luther later recounted that his conversion experience went this way it was if the gates of paradise were swung open to me and I was born again Romans 1 16 and 17 actually serve as a summary of the entire book of Romans for here in these two verses Paul is setting out the theme of the entire book which is of course the gospel itself The theme of the book of Romans centers upon the gospel of God. And so let's look together at our text this morning, verses 16 and 17, but I'll begin reading in verse 15 just to set the context a little bit. So Romans chapter 1, verse 15. The Apostle Paul continues as he writes, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the word of God. And let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in it we have hope and joy, and life, and peace. We thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That holds out great hope for us today. It holds out great hope for all of humanity. If they will but turn and trust in Jesus Christ, 
they will experience the power of God into salvation. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in the gospel today. We ask it according to your word and in accord with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 15 here, Paul makes clear that he is eager to visit Rome and to preach the gospel there also. He wants to do in Rome what he has done in so many other cities around the Roman Empire, to preach the gospel to believers and unbelievers alike and see a great harvest of gospel fruit as a result. Paul wants to see the gospel fruit born of evangelism as unbelievers turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And he wants to see the gospel fruit born of discipleship as he preaches the gospel and believers are better understanding the depth and the breadth of God's great mercy shown to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is not just for us when we start with Christ. The gospel helps us go deeper in Christ. The gospel builds us up in Christ. The gospel is for the believer and unbeliever alike. Paul's eagerness to preach the gospel stems from the fact that he is not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, that's kind of a negative way to say it. The positive way is Paul has every confidence in the gospel. He's not ashamed of it at all. In fact, he boasts in the Lord and in his gospel. Verse 16 makes that clear. There were no doubt some among the Romans who were ashamed of the gospel or tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. But why? Why be ashamed of the gospel? Why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? After all, isn't the gospel good news? Why does sharing the good news make one ashamed? Who doesn't want to hear good news? And who wouldn't want to share good news? Well, the gospel is good news. The Bible's clear about that. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. The good news that God in His love and grace has sent His Son Jesus into the world as a sacrifice for sin. The good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, a life we could never live, and He died on the cross as a sinless substitute for guilty sinners. The good news is that your sins and my sins can be forever forgiven today by simply believing on Jesus, trusting Him to be your Lord and Savior. So why would anyone be ashamed of this good news? Well, there's lots of reasons why someone might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, The word of the cross, or the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to those who are unbelieving. The gospel is foolishness to them. In that same passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews. They trip over it. They don't accept it. They reject it. It's a stumbling block to Jews. They can't get their minds around the fact that Messiah would be one who would suffer at the hands of Gentiles and die on a Roman cross. That's unthinkable to the Jewish mind. Gentiles, non-Jews, reject the gospel because from a human perspective, to them it seems absolutely absurd. It's foolish. It makes no sense. It seems ridiculous to mere human reason. You believe Jesus rose from the dead? That's preposterous. That doesn't coincide with science. That's not a position of learning. 
gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul experienced this kind of jeering unbelief and rejection firsthand when Paul was preaching in Athens. Athens, that center of Greek philosophy, that hotbed of ideas. Paul was there waiting for his friends and listen to what it says in Acts 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed the city full of idols. It's a pagan city. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He's doing, he's doing street evangelism. He's going out and he's just sharing the gospel. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? What has this knucklehead got to say to us? He doesn't even make any sense. His ideas, his philosophies can't compete with ours. What is this idle battler, babbler up to? Others say this, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. These are strange deities indeed. A God who would send his son, who would die and rise again. This doesn't make any sense because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul went on there in Athens on Mars Hill to powerfully preach the gospel to all who would listen. And listen to part of what Paul said there in his sermon on Mars Hill. Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is Paul talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, crucified and risen. Now, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Some began to jeer. Some began to taunt and heckle Paul as he preached. But others said, we shall hear you again on this matter. This is interesting. Their spirit was provoked. Their conscience was pricked. Their interest was piqued. Paul endured the sneering and jeering of the crowds. Paul was willing to suffer and even die for the sake of the gospel because he knew of its importance. He knew of its power. Throughout Paul's ministry, he endured all kinds of suffering and hardship for the sake of the gospel. He lists some of those sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I've been in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. But Paul was glad to do it. He would gladly spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel knowing that the gospel was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, perhaps there were some among the Romans who were tempted 
unlike Paul, to be ashamed of the gospel. Think about yourself being a Roman Christian during that time. Here you are in Rome, the center of the empire, the center of ideas, really. Here are these Roman Christians smack dab in the middle of it all. Rome, which respected power and reason. And it seemed that all that Christianity had to offer was weakness and superstitious belief in a resurrection from the dead. And so there was likely a very real temptation for Christians in Rome to keep quiet about their faith and about the gospel, to keep the good news a secret, to keep it under wraps. There was a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, embarrassed by its message, fearful to share it lest they be thought of as being backwards at best and being rebels against the Roman Empire at worst. I wonder if we can relate to that, the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is, after all, by and large, not welcome in our culture. People don't want to hear about our sky God who would kill his own son to save sinners. Sinners, the vast majority of which aren't that bad, after all. Add to that the truth that the gospel says that even the worst of sinners can be saved, even on their deathbed. This kind of grace and mercy to the worst of sinners is scandalous to our cultural ears. From a human perspective, it smacks of injustice. Murders and racists should get what they deserve after all. Not be shown mercy and grace and given forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If anyone goes to hell, it ought to be them. And our culture certainly doesn't want to hear about repentance of sin and confession of guilt. Feelings of guilt are bad, they say. Guilt triggers us. It makes us feel unsafe. Keeps us from realizing our true selves, our authentic selves. All of these things can tempt us to be ashamed of the gospel. In contrast to the fear and shame of some in Rome, Paul states that he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. I can't wait to get there. When I get there, clear the decks, we're going to have a preaching conference. I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone who will hear it. For he's not ashamed of the gospel. What is it that kept Paul from being ashamed of the gospel? Despite all of the jeering and sneering that he endured. How could Paul continue to preach the gospel with confidence and eagerness despite being rejected, laughed at, imprisoned, and even stoned on occasion for preaching the gospel? Well, in our text this morning, we're going to see the truths that help Paul to not be ashamed of the gospel. We're going to see this morning five reasons not to be ashamed of the gospel. Five reasons to have gospel confidence. Confidence in the gospel. The first reason is this, because of the nature of the gospel, it is God's power. We need not be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the most important thing people need to hear. It's the most important issue in anyone's life at any given time. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is 
powerful. It possesses a power not of a human sort, not of natural strength, but it is a power that is supernatural. It is a power from on high. It is a power from God. The gospel is the very power of God at work in the hearts and lives of men and women, causing light to shine in the darkness, causing the spiritually dead to come to life, causing the guilty to be declared righteous and the filthy to be made clean. Only God's power could do all of that. And the gospel is the power of God. The gospel mediates and manifests the power of God. The gospel is the vessel that contains the infinite power of God to save men and women, boys and girls. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel because no one is so lost that they cannot be rescued by the infinite power of God. Isn't that good news? No one is ever too far gone until they're dead. Then it's too late. But until then, the gospel is the power of God that can bring spiritual life where there was spiritual death, spiritual freedom where there was spiritual bondage, spiritual light where there was spiritual darkness. All by the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, The word of the cross, that is the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. To we who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. We know the value of it. In fact, we see the value of it and we're willing to sell all that we have in order to purchase it because it is that treasure hidden in a field. It is that pearl of great price for which we're willing to exchange everything else because we know it's the power of God unto salvation. You see, our sin and our guilt have left us hopeless and helpless. In our natural condition, outside of Christ, we are sinners by nature and by choice. We are slaves to sin, and we are powerless to break free on our own. There is no power in us and no power on earth that is able to deliver us from this bondage. But our slavery to sin is no match for the power of God in the gospel. God, whose power is infinite, God, whose strength and might are limitless, is able to save us to the uttermost through the gospel. The gospel is nothing to be ashamed of, for it is the very power of God. It is a demonstration and conduit of the infinite power of God to come to mankind and do for them what they do not have the power to do for themselves. The gospel is a declaration and a demonstration of the very power of God and we can have every confidence in it. So there's no reason to be ashamed of it. Rather, we are to glory in it. We are to boast in it for it is God's power on display, changing lives and saving souls. That's the first reason to have gospel confidence because of the nature of the gospel. It is God's power. Secondly, we can have confidence in the gospel and not be ashamed of the gospel because of the purpose of the gospel, and that is salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The word salvation means deliverance. Deliverance from destruction. Rescue from peril. 
Another way to translate this phrase would be that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation or resulting in salvation. The result of God's exercise of power in the gospel is the salvation of sinners, the rescue of rebels. But what is it that these sinners are saved from? Well, we know from the Bible that the answer is that God saves sinners from eternal judgment in hell. Eternal judgment that their sins deserve. And yet, a fuller answer to that would be that we know that it's not so much what sinners are saved from, but who they are saved from. Ultimately, the gospel saves us from God himself. God in his wrath. God in his justice. God in his righteousness who must punish every act of sin. The Bible teaches us that God is holy, righteous, and good. He is just and perfect. A just and perfect judge who must punish every act of sin and rebellion. And because God is infinitely holy, every act of sin and rebellion committed against Him is an infinite offense and deserves an infinite punishment. This infinite punishment is the pouring out of God's just wrath in hell for all eternity. And so very much so, what we need deliverance from is not just hell, but it is from God whose wrath is poured out in that place called hell. And so when Paul says that the gospel is God's power for salvation, he's saying that the gospel is God's power to save sinners from God, from God's just judgment against sin. The gospel then is the power of God to deliver us, to rescue us from the peril, from the destruction that is God's wrath. God, in His love and mercy, provides a way of salvation, a way of deliverance and rescue from His own just wrath against our sin. And that is good news. It's good news for sinners. It was good news in Paul's day, and it's good news today. Good news that should grow us in gospel confidence. This truly is good news. There is a way of salvation, salvation from the wrath that is to come, wrath poured out by a holy God. It's good news. May it grow us in confidence. Thirdly, we need not be ashamed of the gospel because of the scope of the gospel. It's for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Friends, that is really good news. It means that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one is so far gone that the power of the gospel can't transform them. It's good news. It's for everyone. No rebel is too far gone that he's beyond the reach of God's powerful good news. The gospel is intended by God to go everywhere to everyone. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel by God's intention and by apostolic practice went to the Jew first. And then it spread out to the Gentiles. This was in keeping with God's redemptive plan in history. It's also in keeping with Jesus' command in the Great Commission. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
starting in Jerusalem and Judea with the Jews and extending out to Samaritans who were half Jewish and even to the remotest parts of the earth, to all the Gentiles and the Greeks, the non-Jews. Paul's practice when coming to a new city was to go to the synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews first and then move on to Gentiles. This was, as we will see, an important issue in the book of Romans. Though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, this didn't mean he wasn't aware of the Jews' priority of place in God's redemptive plan. So the gospel is intended to go out to everyone and is powerful to save everyone, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. But notice that the text says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, as the power of God unto salvation, actually only saves those who believe, those who respond in faith to the message of the gospel. But it saves everyone who believes. And so the gospel and the power of it is exclusive in that God's gospel saves only those who believes, and yet it is inclusive in that it saves everyone who believes. In order to experience the saving power of God in the gospel, you have to believe. You as an individual have to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from the wrath that is to come. But rest assured, once you believe, no matter who you are or what you've done, you are saved through the very power of God. So what does it then mean to believe? What does belief look like? Well, I think the Reformers broke it down pretty well for us. They taught us that saving faith involved three facets. And we got a little Latin here this morning, all right? Three terms that describes saving faith, their components, and their progressive steps towards saving faith. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia, N-O-T-I-T-I-A, is simple knowledge. It is learning the necessary facts of something. True saving faith cannot come unless one hears the message of the gospel. You have to know certain facts to get out of the gate toward belief. Romans 10, 14 says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they've not heard? If you've never heard the gospel message, you'll never be saved by the gospel message. That is step one. You've got to learn certain facts about the gospel. That mankind is fallen and guilty before God and that God in his love sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for mankind to live a sinless life and die a substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus died, rose again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now God offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus alone. That's the facts of the gospel. You've got to hear that or you'll never be saved. And that's why we send missionaries all over the world. That's why we encourage you to share the gospel because the first step toward becoming a believer, toward escaping the wrath that is to come, toward being saved, is to hear the facts. The next step is a census. Hearing it is not enough. Learning the facts of the gospel are not enough. 
to save us. We have to move on to the next step. And that is a census, which is simply agreeing with the facts. True saving faith cannot come unless one hears the message of the gospel and affirms the message to be true. In other words, you believe it. That is a census. Now, Tisha is hearing, for instance, that man has walked on the moon. You can hear those facts. A census responds and says, I believe that man walked on the moon. It is affirming the facts we've heard as being true. But as good as that is, it's not enough to save. Knowledge and assent are both necessary for salvation, but by themselves they are insufficient for salvation. In fact, James tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. Meaning that, yeah, the demons know the truth of the gospel. Yeah, the demons affirm the truth of the gospel. They know what's true and what's not. But that doesn't mean the demons are saved. No, another step, a final step of saving faith is necessary, and that is the step of fiducia. Fiducia, F-I-D-U-C-I-A, is not only hearing the truth and believing the truth, but also trusting in the truth. It is to lean upon the truth, to depend upon the truth as if it was your lifeline. It is to trust in, rest in, and rely upon the truth of Jesus Christ as he's presented to us in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. You can say you know the truth about chairs, right? You've heard the chair illustration. That a chair will hold you up if you sit in it. That it's constructed in such a way that it's sufficient and comfortable to hold you up. You can know that, know the facts about it. That is notitia. You can say that you agree with the truth about chairs being able to hold up people and sit, who sit on them. That is a census. You agree and you confirm and you affirm that truth. But until you move to fiducia, until you actually sit yourself in that chair, you really haven't demonstrated true faith. Until your body weight is resting on that piece of furniture, you're not there yet. So you can say you know about Jesus. You can say that you agree with and affirm the truth that you know about Jesus. But until you entrust your eternal soul to Jesus, until you're trusting in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of sins, you haven't experienced true saving faith yet. God saves everyone who believes, regardless of ethnicity, background, or social status. But He only saves those who believe. The gospel is God's power into salvation for everyone who believes. So, beloved, there's no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. It's good news for everyone who will believe. Fourthly, we need not be ashamed of the gospel. We can have gospel confidence because of the inner workings of the gospel. The inner workings of the gospel, which are the righteousness of God. This is how sinners come to be saved. Through the righteousness of God. Now verse 17 helps to explain verse 16. Verse 17 is an expansion on verse 16. Verse 17 explains how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. 
How or in what way is the gospel the power of God into salvation for all who believe? How does the gospel actually work? My brother was one of those kids who had to know how things worked. And so he'd get a new toy for Christmas, and by the end of Christmas Day, the thing was in a thousand pieces because he had to figure out how it worked. Well, that's an inquisitive mind. And Paul is sharing with us here in summary form in verse 17 how salvation actually works, how it comes to be that sinners are saved. It is through the righteousness of God. I can look at the face of a clock and see the hands move around the dial. But from looking at the face of the clock, I can't tell how the clock actually works. For that, I have to go to the back of the clock and open it up and see the inner workings. I have to see the springs and the wheels and the gears and the pins all working together in perfect harmony, causing the face, the hands on the face of the clock to move around in proper order. And so verse 16, if you will, is the face of the clock. And verse 17, and really the rest of Romans, is opening up the back of the clock and seeing the magnificent inner workings of the gospel. How does this thing work? Verse 17 is how it works, and the rest of Romans is how it works. So how does the gospel work? We know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, but just how does that work? How is it brought about? Verse 17 gives the summary answer. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is a key phrase in the book of Romans. Out of the nine times in all of Paul's biblical writings does he use the phrase righteousness of God, Eight of them are in the book of Romans. The only other place where Paul uses this specific phrase, the righteousness of God, is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is another key verse. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on the cross, on our behalf, so that through that transaction, we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. The righteousness of God then refers to the gift of righteousness that God confers on those who believe in Jesus. It is a status, a standing, a legal standing, if you will, of righteousness that is conferred upon us at the moment of our salvation. It is a righteousness that is not actual. It is not an experiential righteousness. In other words, you and I, even though we're saved, don't live perfectly righteous lives. If you think you do, talk to your spouse. None of us do. Even as Christians... We are not made righteous in the experiential sense. We are declared righteous in God's eye. We are giving a legal standing before Him. That is righteousness. He declares us to be righteous in His sight on the basis of Christ. And it is conferred through faith in Christ. 
This righteous standing and status before God is given as a gift of God's grace and it is received through faith in Jesus as the ground of our righteousness. So in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the righteous demands of God, and the righteous standing conferred upon the believing sinner are all revealed. They're put on display. They're made known. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Whenever the gospel is preached, the righteousness of God is uncovered and put on display for all to see. God's righteous demands in the law, God's righteous law fulfilled in the life of His Son Jesus, God's righteous judgment against sin poured out on Jesus on the cross, God's righteous forgiveness of sin for all those who trust in Jesus and His finished work to save them. The gospel is nothing to be ashamed of, for it is a revelation of God Himself, the revelation of God's righteousness, and it is the revelation of how we, guilty sinners, can be made righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing to be ashamed of. Every reason to boast in the gospel. Fifthly and finally, we can gain gospel confidence knowing that the saving response to the gospel is faith in Jesus. God hasn't made it hard for us in one sense, right? In one sense, it's not hard at all. In another sense, this thing is impossible with mankind, right? But what was impossible with man is very possible with God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, Paul says. It's difficult to know exactly what Paul means by this sentence here. But it most likely means that right standing with God is by faith from start to finish. And that it is conferred upon us by faith and by faith alone. That the Christian begins walking with Christ by faith and continues walking with Christ by faith. It is from faith to faith. The Christian life, all of it, is a life of faith. Faith in God that He will be faithful to His promise to account those as righteous who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. The word faith and the word believe, faith is in verse 17, believe is in verse 16, they're from the same root word. So verse 17 is Paul expanding upon verse 16. And the belief of verse 16 is the same as the faith of verse 17. God's power unto salvation is the gospel that is received by faith alone. And Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. He's backing himself up here. He's saying, look, what I'm preaching to you is nothing new. This is nothing novel. This is not some aberration. This is what the Bible has always taught, that there is one way of salvation, and it is through faith in God and in His promise to honor His Son, Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 2.4 taught that. It's always been God's plan to declare believing sinners righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So really the question for us today is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have the assurance of knowing that you are right with God, that you are righteous in His sight, that He has declared you righteous on the basis of His Son Jesus because you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you can have that assurance today. You can know for sure that you have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven, and that you are right with God because God has done everything necessary 
to make salvation for you possible. All you have to do is believe, to respond in faith. Faith is the empty hand of the sinner reaching up to God and receiving what he has supplied. Faith is simply receiving everything that you lacked and needed from God and saying, thank you. Yes, Lord, I believe you. I believe your promise. I believe your son, Jesus. And I'm trusting in him alone for salvation. Have you received this gift yet of righteousness? Have you experienced the power of God into salvation by believing on Jesus? Do you personally have the peace of knowing that you've been declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of faith and you will never face the wrath of God because Jesus faced it all for you. If not, trust in Jesus today. Christian, to you I say, you have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed and this righteousness is received by faith from start to finish. What a truth. What good news. What a gospel. May we never be ashamed of it for His glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for the gospel truth that you take unworthy sinners, guilty before you, rebels, to your will. And you declare them to be righteous in your sight on the basis of the righteousness of your son, his righteous life, and his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. And Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness because you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in him. Thank you, Father, for your glorious plan of salvation. Thank you that the power of God is revealed in the gospel. Thank you that the righteousness of God is attained through faith in Christ alone. Lord Jesus, be honored as we worship you around your table now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.